All right, well, welcome again to Providence, a day that is very, very, very different than our norm. Uh, probably my favorite thing besides just getting to sing some great hymns was to sing, uh, Ch- see Chad's just absolute uncomfortability. Uh, I was just awesome. I just loved it. Uh, but but uh, we're going to eventually make our way to Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 3, uh, which you can find in the Black Bibles around you on page 939. Uh, so go ahead and make your way to Romans 1 and Romans 3. We'll get there here in a little while. But like I said, this morning has been uh, a little bit different. It's been different musically. It's been different liturgically. And the sermon is also going to be a little bit different this morning uh, because we're going to be taking just departing from what we normally do. And so if you are a guest at Providence, what we typically do here is called expository preaching. And so it's where we are just going through a book of the Bible and just seeking to expose what the original author intended when he wrote whatever it is that he wrote. And so for quite a long while now, we've been in the book of Luke. Uh, We've got six sermons in the book of Luke, and we will finish that book up. Um, But periodically throughout series that we do, like Luke, we've been in it for like two years. Because of the length of that, we will take times and we'll break it up with a series on a specific biblical topic or a biblical theme or just here and there, just a spot sermon on something. And that's what today is. Today is just kind of a spot sermon on the Reformation. And the reason we're doing that today is because Tuesday, when everyone's consumed with candy, and I will be as well, it's going to be a great day, uh, buy good candy, not nasty candy, be generous as you give that candy out. On that day, 500 years ago, October the 31st, 1517, is the day that has been credited with the birth of the Protestant Reformation. And as John said, that is the day that Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk and a professor at the University of Wittenberg in Germany, nailed 95 handwritten notes and complaints calling out the church and the corruption of the church and the false doctrines that the church was teaching. And he nailed those to the church door in Wittenberg, all right? And so um, for like you and, and I, if anything ever goes bad here, don't, don't go nail anything to our door. Uh, it's metal anyhow, so it's going to be really hard to get a nail to go in there. But even if you glued it on there, it's not going to do anything. But in their day, the church door kind of served as the community bulletin board. And so people would put things up there. And so it was the Facebook of the day. It was the Twitter of the day. And so it was as if um, Martin Luther had taken and and written 95 different posts on Facebook or on his Twitter account and published those out to the world. And indeed, they did get published out to the world because the Gutenberg Press had just been invented. And people took these things that he had written in Latin, translated them in German, and they spread like wildfire and the entire western world came to know of those but then the entire world was forever changed by those and with any major movement um, you often get a like a rallying cry and so um, like remember the Alamo you got the rallying cry there with the revolutionary war what was the rallying cry Man, we need to do some history in our schools. But yeah, you go taxation without representation or you can go, Patrick Henry, give me, li- give me liberty or give me death. 
right? I have a dream. All these rallying cries from different movements. And it's the same with the Reformation. Coming out of the Reformation was a rallying cry. Um, and that was almost kind of like a summary statement of the Reformation. And it had to do with five great solas. All right. Anybody want to write that down? Sola. S-O-L-A. Sola. It's Latin for alone. Okay. Alone. And there were five of them. Sola Scriptura. Sola Gratia. Sola Fide. Solus Christus. And Sola Deo Gloria. Translated from Latin, this means Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, and sola deo gloria. And so if you've been at Providence any length of time, you've heard me stand up here and say, hey, because of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, his life, death, burial and resurrection, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. All I'm doing is calling out the solas to you, which are just a reflection of biblical truth. And so these popped up, these five solas, these popped up as just a way of framing biblical truths. And they popped up and developed because of the conviction that the church of their day had drifted away from the essential and original teachings of Christianity. And so you had the Roman Catholic Church teaching that the ultimate and infallible authority for faith and practice was a combination of the scriptures, sacred tradition, and the teaching of the magisterium and the Pope. And then reformers come in saying, no, 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 no. The only ultimate and infallible authority, yeah, we can learn some things from other stuff, but the only ultimate and infallible authority is scripture alone. Sola scriptura. You also had the church teaching that we are saved through a combination of God's grace the merits that we accumulate through penance and good works and the overabundance of merits and good works that the saints had done that you could, for a payment to the church, procure for yourself. And this, the reformers come in saying, no, 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 no. The Bible says it's by grace alone. Not all these other things. All right, so gratia. Similarly, the church taught that we are justified by faith and works that we produce and that this combination produces the righteousness of God that God demands and requires. But the reformers responded, no, the Bible teaches that we are justified by faith alone. Sola fide and the perfect holiness and righteousness of God that he requires and demands is the perfect holiness and righteousness of Christ that God freely credits to the account of those who believe. It's about what Jesus has done, not what we do. So, sola fide. That's three of them. So is scriptura, so is gratia, so is fide. The fourth, so is Christus. The church was also teaching that we are saved based upon the merits of Christ and the merits of the saints. And that we approach God through Christ as we pray, as well as through the saints and through Mary. But the reformers came in and say, no, the Bible teaches that we are saved by the merits of Christ alone and that we come to God the Father through Christ alone. So was Christus. And then the fifth one 
The church was teaching that the glory and the praise for a sinner's salvation could be attributed partly to Christ, partly to Mary and the saints, and partly to the sinner himself. But the reformers came in saying, no, the only true gospel is that which gives all glory to God alone as is taught in the Scriptures. And so the solas are kind of the rallying cry and summary of of all the most important, not everything that was done in the Reformation, but the big, most important truths that were recovered and restored during the Reformation. All right, all five of them. But perhaps the catalyst for these was sola fide, faith alone. That we are justified by faith alone. And so I want to dive a little bit more into that one. And I want to do so just by telling you the story of how Martin Luther came to faith. Okay, so again, really different today, really more of a talk than it is a sermon. Uh, but I think it's important for this day as we recognize that that like, what God has is, is doing, has been doing, didn't just like stop 2000 years ago and then all of a sudden start back today. He's been at work throughout all of history. And so Luther, he was born in 1483, the son of a copper miner. And his father, he had a brilliant mind. His father sent him to university to be a lawyer. And so he went and he got his master's of law. He was seen and known as a brilliant scholar there in Germany. But he was overwhelmed during all that time with thoughts of his impending death and his doom and damnation to hell. And that was like his favorite word, by the way. If you go read his stuff, damnation, everything, blah, 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 blah. That was, he's kind of vulgar. And so then one day in 1505, he's riding his horse and he's caught in a thunderstorm and lightning strikes right next to him. And the explosion of the lightning knocks him off of his horse. And in the midst of the thunder and in the midst of the lightning, he cries out, St. Anne, who's the patron saint of miners, St. Anne, save me and I'll become a monk. And he survives the thunderstorm and much to his parents' dismay, two weeks later, he goes and he joins the Augustinian monastery in the city of Erfurt, Germany. And he sets about trying to become just the most devoted monk that you could be hoping that through that it would give him this elusive peace for his soul that he so longed for. And so he later wrote, I kept the rule so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by sheer monkery, it was I. If I had kept on, and this is true, if I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. And Luther's telling the truth here. He was so overwhelmed by guilt and by his sin that he did everything he could to assuage it. And so repeatedly, he would fast for three days straight. He would repeatedly sleep out in sub-freezing temperatures with no blanket. He would repeatedly flog and whip himself, trying to do penance and pay, pay for his sins. He would repeatedly try to play all, pray all night long. And if he happened to fall asleep, then he would beat himself more. Go and sleep in the cold more, fast more. He would go to confession and he would confess for five hours a day. I, like, I don't only feel bad for Luther, but I feel bad for the priest. Just having to sit. Oh, come on. 
But he would confess and confess and confess and think of everything in his whole life to confess for. And then he would start confessing that he couldn't remember all of his sins that he's sure he had done, but was just blind to. And so he'd confess all of that and just go into a deeper depression and a deeper funk over the overwhelming condemnation and impending doom and damnation of hell that was coming for him. Just overwhelmed with this. Today, people would have probably wanted put him on medicine, which is perfectly fine, but it wasn't medication that Luther needed. It was the gospel. But Luther didn't know the gospel. And Luther didn't understand the gospel because, again, remember at that time, all that he's ever been taught is that salvation is by faith and good works. Like, you've got to do stuff to earn God's favor and forgiveness. And despite all that he had done and all the extreme forms of penance that he had lived out, he still didn't think that he could ever do enough to merit forgiveness in the eyes of a perfect and holy and omnipotent and omniscient almighty God. He could never do enough. And he was right. And so no matter what he felt, you know, what he did, no matter what he did, he felt that there was just no hope for his soul. He looked at Scripture and he saw God call us to be holy as I am holy. And he's like, I'm not. I'm not holy as God is. And I can't be. And he saw certain passages that spoke of God's mercy, but he had no understanding of how, how can God's mercy, but also all this wrath and judgment we see, how can that be true at the same time? His wrath has to be greater than His mercy because it's more formative. We saw passages that spoke of God's love. But he also knew that God was completely just and His standard was absolute perfection and holiness. And short of that, you could never be made right with God. Sin has to be atoned for. It has to be paid for. And you must be perfect to be able to come into God's presence. And if not, then hell. And so faced with what Luther saw as an unattainable and absolutely impossible yet required demand of God, perfection, right? But it's impossible and it's unattainable, yet God still requires it. Luther finally declared that he did not love God. In fact, I hate Him. But God in heaven was at work in the midst of all of this working for Luther's good and indeed our own good ultimately and, and ultimately the, the glory of God. Because oftentimes in, in God's mysterious ways, He works the most in your life and in my life through times of difficulty and through times of pain and suffering. And so in the midst of Luther's struggle, God sent him to the University of Wittenberg to be a professor. Professor of what? Professor of the Bible. And so he starts studying the Scriptures even more. And through the course of time, he's teaching on the books of, of Psalms and the book of Romans. And he became fixated on the opening line of Psalm 22. Now, can he, and we're going to test you again. Can anybody tell me what the opening line of Psalm 22 says? I will give you a hint. Jesus cries it out from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
All right. Now, Luther could understand why David, who wrote Psalm 22, would say that. Because Luther felt it as well. Luther felt forsaken by God. So he got David. He, he understood that. But what he could not understand is why Jesus would say that. Because Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is holy. Jesus is perfect. He has no blemishes. So how could he say that he had been forsaken by God? So he's fixated on this for months. And then he realized the only way that Jesus could say that is if our sins had been put on Jesus. And He was suffering for our sins. In our place, He was taking the wrath of God and God was forsaking Him and He was enduring the wrath of God that we deserved. Right? He's doing it in our place as our substitute. And so that means then that if Jesus is paid for, our sin is gone. God's wrath has been satisfied. And in this, God's mercy and wrath and His justice and love are all displayed all together. And we have to realize they all exist at the same time and one's not greater than the other. And so a new... Uh, and revolutionary picture of God to Luther, alright, but what is actually just the original and real picture of God according to the scriptures, this began to develop in Luther's restless soul. And finally in 1515, he's teaching through the book of Romans. And he came across the words of Romans 1 and Romans 3. That's where I told you to put a finger in your Bible, so open up to Romans 1 and Romans 3 and let's read a little bit. Page 939 in the Bible is around you. If you don't have one, grab it. Certainly open it up. Look at this with me. And if you don't own a Bible at home or you don't have one that, that is easy to read and follow along with, take that the one around you home with you. And so he's teaching through the book of Romans. Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. This is the Apostle Paul. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. Who believes? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, it being the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. And so you've got this question of, of a righteousness that we are to live with. Okay, Flip over to Romans chapter 3. Start reading with me in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Luther's reading this and saying, yes, I, I know. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the ways of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is us. This is our state outside of Christ. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, law being Old Testament commands, 
Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, right? remember, we've got to have the righteousness of God in order to merit being in front of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's this alien righteousness that's not your own. It's out there. It's separate from you. It's Christ's righteousness, not your own. All right. And it comes through faith for all who believe, for there's no distinction. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a big word here, propitiation, which is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes wrath into favor. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. Sin has consequences. God does not overlook it. He is just. It will be paid for. But also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of wall? By a wall of works? No, but by the law of faith. Big summary statement, verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Sola fide. And so Luther sees it clearly now. It's faith alone. A man is saved by faith in what Christ did, not in what I do. It's not by our works. We are saved by works, but not our works. The works that Jesus did for us. His perfect life. His death. His resurrection. The life that we should live, a life without sin, Jesus did. The death that we're condemned to die for sin, Jesus died. And then He rose to give us the gift that we could never earn, which is the forgiveness of our sins. And so Luther later wrote, night and day I pondered on this until I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. And friends, this is available for anyone who would repent and believe. Because on the cross, the Father treated Jesus as if He had lived your life. 
so that he can treat you as if you had lived Jesus's life. Luther called this the great exchange. That Jesus, all of your sin and all of your guilt and all of your shame and all of your wickedness and all of your godlessness is taken off you and it's placed upon Jesus and all of Jesus's righteousness and perfection and holiness is placed on you. And so that alien righteousness is big word imputed. That is, it is put on you so that when God looks on you, he does not see you in your sins. Those have been transferred to Jesus. He sees you in the righteousness of Christ, which has been transferred to you. That's the gospel. And so it's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus did. And therefore, all the praise and the glory goes to Jesus because we didn't do anything. Jesus did it all. And so as overjoyed as Luther was, as he you know, began to understand this, and this is a long process for him, he realized that he's not destined for hell. He has heaven as his home, and he has God not as his foe, but as his friend. He began to realize then how contradictory what he had been teaching as a monk and all that he had been taught and that the church was continuing to teach. He realized how contradictory it was to... The Bible. And so if it was true that salvation came by faith in Christ alone, then the intercession of priests is superfluous. And that if faith is formed and nurtured by the Word of God written and preached, then that requires no monks and no masses and no prayers to the saints. And the Reformation was the outworking of all of this over the next couple hundred years and really up through today. That Scripture is our ultimate authority. And that Scripture says that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And, and just as an aside, if you're like, well, what about works? The Reformers always said that, like, yes, we're saved by faith alone, but not by, and listen close here, not by a faith that is alone. That is, that true faith will always produce, uh, will always, will not produce salvation. True faith, though, will always produce good works. Alright? So salvation will produce good works. Good works will never produce salvation. That train only goes one way. Salvation, inherently, they will produce good works. But they're it's a consequence of, it's not causative. And so these are the great souls. And in particular, Sola Fide, which was kind of the catalyst. But as you parse through history and you look at all that was going on in the lives of the great reformers, you begin to see that in a lot of ways, the Reformation was about joy in Christ. About recognizing God as the supreme reality of the universe. Both transcendent and supreme high and lifted up holy, holy, holy. Like un unapproachable holiness and majesty, but imminent also. Right here with us. Loving us, guiding us, caring for us, being with us, forgiving us. And I think that the men born out of the English Reformation really sum this up well when they wrote what's called the Westminster Catechism in 1647. The first question is this. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is that the chief end of man is to glorify God 
and enjoy Him forever. See, Luther had struggled so long with his impending doom, not seeing possible how all of God's attributes could work together. But now he understood, yes, God is unapproachably holy. Yes, He is majestic and powerful, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Yes, He has wrath against sin and evil, but also He has grace and kindness. And He's good and loving and He's beautiful. And we can and should therefore enjoy God. Not hate, not avoid, not appease, not live in begrudging, beat down submission to Him, but enjoy Him. Because that is what true worship is. You can't worship something you don't like. And so that's why here at Providence, our purpose statement is to worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same. And so if you've never done the same, if you've never trusted Christ, if you've never repented and believed the good news that Jesus took your place upon the cross and that through faith, His righteousness becomes yours, that great exchange, do so today. Would you do so today? Trust Christ. He is kind. And He will never turn away someone who comes to Him in repentance and faith. If you would trust by faith in what Christ has done to be what makes you right with God. And so trust Him. Try, place your faith in Him if you've never done so. And when you do, and for all of you who already have, remember these words from Luther. When the devil throws our sins up to us, because he's the accuser, and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where He is, I shall someday be as well. That's the best news you are going to hear today. Really ever. In Christ, we are forgiven. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So, Sola Deo Gloria. So let's pray. Father, thank You that You give us salvation that we do not deserve. Indeed, we could never earn, for we are sinners. We are born in sin. We are not just predisposed to it, it is in us. It is our nature as a result of the fall. And we are depraved, and we cannot save ourselves. And yet, you are kind, and Christ came. And did for us what we could not do. Living the perfect life we didn't. And dying the death that we should have. And rising to guarantee it all. And so Father, I pray this morning that we would be reminded and encouraged by that. I pray that we would be reminded and encouraged that You take ordinary people like Luther with his serious, serious flaws. But You do amazing things through ordinary and broken people. 
And you are faithful to build your church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Father, help us to see just by scale of time, just to gain some context as we look at our own lives and recognize You never leave us or forsake us and that even through trials and difficulty and suffering, You are up to something. And things that take place in our lives, whether it's for our family or friends or whatever, we may never know in our lifetime what that does down the road as you carry out your good work for your people. Help us to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. As our moms and dads and aunts and uncles in the faith on whose shoulders we stand, did as well. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.